Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to another day, another episode, another edition of Concord Matters, where we take seriously the belief that we can be of one mind in our Lord Jesus Christ because he has revealed it in his word in enough of a truthful way that we can same say it. We can speak it back again and even understand what each other are saying. You wouldn't think it would be so hard, but these days it is hard to find in the postmodern context of American catastrophe. And so what do we do as Lutherans? Well, we continue to go back and study as it has been left behind for us by faithful confessors of the past. And so we are at Concord Matters making our way through the Book of Concord knee deep. I don't know ankle deep in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, Article 4. As my regular set of guests here, I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. We got the angelic one, Peter Ill, pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstead, Illinois. The unanswerable Sean Smith from St. Paul Winehill and Emmanuel West Point, Illinois. And the subtle, awesome monkey, <laughs> Mr. Peter Slayton, <laughs> social media manager of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're going to be picking up right in the middle of paragraph 93 of this Article 4 slash Article 5 slash Article 3, depending on how you number it and what edition you have of the Augsburg Confession. Really, the, the, the article on which the church stands or falls, and therefore the one that Melanchthon is at pains to take every single possible argument that the Roman Catholic theologians in their confutation have thrown at it and dissect them piece by piece, which does lead to some repetition. Yeah, but we're also going to be getting into some some passages. Uh, hopefully, but today we can we can move into some of these Bible passages and see the the way that say the Roman Catholics approach Scripture and the difference uh, with the way that we would do so as well. So anyway, gentlemen, welcome to the show. And any opening salvos you want to throw out? I've got my high water pants on, so I'm hoping we're waiting today. I'm I'm good with that one. Get get yeah. past ankles to, to calves. Yeah, low yeah, calves. Yeah, I'm totally ready. Sounds good to me, man. Sean's just staring yeah, just, at me. He's, he's, he's like, I have no response to that. Um, yeah. But as we get started, I, I guess I do have one quick opening salvo. For those of you who hear these awesome nicknames that we have about being subtle and angelic and uh, unanswerable and so on, uh, somebody asked me this actually today over lunch. What's up with the nicknames? Yeah. Um, what episode was that? I don't even remember what episode that was. Early. It was it's really been early. a little while. Yeah. It was about three months ago. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's been about <laughs> At the three beginning months. of this article. We're really good um, at taking inside jokes and running with them. The, so, so I remind to us and to the listeners as well about where these nicknames come from are the uh, the Roman Catholics had been throwing around these uh, self-congratulatory nicknames to each other, calling each other such things as unanswerable and subtle and angelic. Uh, and uh, so I think our, our beloved host, uh, Pastor Fisk, just assigned us each a nickname and ran with it. <laughs> pretty much. And pretty much. And they stuck. stuck. <laughs> so if you're listening and you're wondering what's up with the nicknames, now you know. Yeah. You might wish you didn't but you still do hey no but i mean i mean at least for for pastor smith here being a newlywed it's got to be nice to be unanswerable in a newlywed situation <laughs> i don't know I, that that sword can cut both or is it, ways or is it better to be angelic or is it better to be subtle i don't know which one is better i kind of think angelic might be i the think better angelic one. is yeah. the way to go personally <laughs> 
what, what, and I shouldn't even open this can of worms, but you, you notice that somebody's escaped, you know, the abuse in this situation. The one who gave the <laughs> yeah, well, you have the mute right. button, so yes, I we, do. Yeah, we, care, have to be we have careful. to behave ourselves. Well, if you ever feel like You're starting... You're just a good theologian. If you ever feel... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Cross-defense <laughs> listeners get that. Uh, <laughs> if you ever feel like uh, starting a, a nasty rumor about my nickname, I did just recently preach at uh, Pastor Ill's church and did a little bit on the Augsburg Confession. I didn't get to this point, but that, there's a presentation I've done on the Augsburg Confession and we get down to this guy named uh, 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 John Frederick the Magnanimous, one of our, our historical uh, confessors of the faith. And I've always thought, man, what a nickname. I'd love for someone to call me Pastor Fisk the Magnanimous. <laughs> That's all right. We can do that. So if you feel like it, Pastor Hill, you can call me Magnanimous. I'm challenging you right now on air. Oh, okay. Since my name is Pastor Hill and since everybody knows that, I have a font problem. Uh, not the baptismal font kind of a problem, <laughs> but a, a typesetting font kind of a problem. People type my name, Ill, I-L-L, and it comes out like the third, mm. and then people will True. will call me up on the telephone and be like, you misfilled out our form. <laughs> no, I didn't. I know what my last name is. No, it says here the third. And so I'm always trying to give myself great nicknames like The Great or something. I think I need to start going with the magnanimous. It's, it's, but, magnanimous yeah. is pretty sweet. I okay. mean, Frederick the Wise, you got some good nicknames from I know. them. you got to be pretty magnanimous to handle that kind of abuse about your name, so... It, hey, you got a point. Or angelic. All right. Either way. It, we, we will with get that to said, that. we should probably get into the content to this show today. Yeah, there will be some content. <laughs> this is not Table Talk Radio or The God Whispers. <laughs> we will have something of value. So, I do got to say, though, the ill, I mean, I thought you were Peter the Third for the longest time, because on yeah. Facebook, that's all I could see. It's like, who is this weird dude? People who... <laughs> First, meet me on Facebook. Think I'm using some kind of a pseudonym. No, this is really me. I promise. Yeah. Whatever. The the only pastor with the Beastie Boys song for a name. That's right. right. License <laughs> license to Peter the Ill. We're gonna pick up in the middle of paragraph ninety three. We're defending justification by grace through faith because it is. Can I say it? It is incredibly important. What what kind of acronym can I throw on the front there to insist how deeply, truly, unbelievably important this is? And Melanchthon continues by saying this. He says, We are not counted righteous because of works without Christ as mediator. We do not merit forgiveness of sins, grace, and righteousness by works. We cannot set our works against God's wrath and justice. Works cannot overcome the terrors of sin. And it's like, do you get the point yet? Do you get the point? He's trying to make sure you get the point. But the terrors of sin are overcome through faith alone. And maybe that's kind of a place, I'm going to read through the, this whole opening section here to get us up to 97, but that's the place where I would want us to talk, at least initially here, again, emphasizing how it is, what is it about faith that is so unique? What is it about faith that makes it salvific? It's not just that I, I have this happy, warm feeling for God, right? So maybe, maybe come back to that, but only Christ the mediator is to be presented by faith against God's wrath and judgment. Paragraph 94, if anyone thinks differently, he does not give Christ due honor. Christ has been set forth so that he might be an atonement, that through him we might have access to the Father. We are speaking now about the righteousness through which we approach God, not humans. That's a little, you know, works. We do need to work for our neighbors thing there. But by which we receive grace and peace of conscience. Conscience is key to this matter too. Conscience, however, cannot be eased before God unless through faith alone. Why? Why faith alone? Faith is certain that God, for Christ's sake, is reconciled to us, according to Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith or through faith or by means of faith as an instrument faith, we have peace. This is because justification is only a matter freely promised for Christ's sake. Therefore, it is always received before God through faith alone. I mean, you would think we talk about this being the article on justification, but it's the article on faith. That's actually what the, the issue is about, right? Redemption through faith, sanctification through faith. All of these things are a matter of this bucket. And now I, I tip my hat there, this bucket of faith. So thoughts, gentlemen? 
Yeah, can can I read a, a little bit, maybe of a Walther? longer? Well, it's Luther. <laughs> Luther, okay. Yeah. I was going to um, stop if it was Walther, but yeah, Luther's okay. great. <laughs> well, a couple days ago, in uh, in a Luther devotional that I I like to look at and go through. Uh, uh, I, I was thinking of this article that we've been working through for several months now uh, with Luther's um, devotion on this. Uh, it's, it's a devotion on Genesis 4, uh, verse 4 through 5, which is the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And uh, I'd like to read this Luther devotional. I think he just nails oh, it yeah. so, so why this, this. this faith is Agreed. so important. He says, God's approval isn't based on what a person does. Rather, he accepts what a person does because he already approves of the person. The person hasn't earned God's approval through the good that he or she does. Because God looked with favor on Abel, he also accepted Abel's offering. God did not look with favor on Cain, so he didn't accept his offering. So Abel had God's approval even before he had done anything. The author of Hebrews writes, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Cain also brought an offering, in fact, brought his offering before Abel brought his. But he brought his offering with an arrogant and overconfident attitude. He assumed that God would be pleased with his sacrifice for the simple reason that he was the firstborn. Because he lacked faith he and didn't acknowledge his sinfulness, he felt no need to pray and didn't place his confidence in the mercy of God. This is exactly how those who rely on their own efforts to be justified still act today. They concentrate on the good that they do, which they hope will please God. They don't trust in God's mercy and his grace. They aren't hoping that God will forgive their sins through Christ. This passage is definite proof that God cannot be influenced by outward appearances or impressed by the good that people do. He looks only at the faith of the individual. Yet God doesn't reject any acts of human kindness, no matter how insignificant or meaningless they seem to be. Indeed, the only thing God hates and condemns is unbelief. I, I think that that just nails it. It really does. I, I want to jump on what is so marvelous to me about what that does and what that opens up for early Genesis. Because I've heard I heard it taught in Lutheran churches and Lutheran schools when I was a kid. You know that that what made Cain's sacrifice or Abel's sacrifice better was that he brought it with this like really pure heart. It was the first fruits. I think they would even say he brought the first of of his flock as opposed to a secondary gift. I don't think that's it at all. He brought the blood which God had established as a sacrifice in front of Adam and Eve's face when he covered them with the garments. Right, he'd put blood sacrifice into their religion from the start as a promise of the 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 world to come in Christ or the sacrifice to come in Christ. Abel just continues offering the blood. Cain, being the firstborn, thinks he's able to institute new sacrifices, new forms of worship, which should sound familiar on, on a number of different levels. And so he's rejecting faith in the words which had been revealed. Uh, and and uh, Abel continues just faithfully to do what God is, or to believe, I should say, what yeah, God has said. Yeah, we talked about this just previously the last couple of weeks, you know, this this uh, imitation. And then when you lack understanding, you have innovation. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, yeah. yeah, it's exactly what you just said about Cain. King, you know, he, he innovates and comes up with these new sacrifices. And it really, as we have said here in the apology, these godless works have been there since the beginning of time. Yeah. Yeah. That we since don't, we don't want the grace alone sacrifice. We want to do something. And that gets back to kind of Luther's main point there. So I, well, I got, I have one section underlined or highlighted here that I think really kind of is a good summary for this here. Conscience. It's right here at uh, line 96. Conscience, however, cannot be eased before God unless through faith alone. And that's really what we keep trying to do. All, all these works and everything, you're really trying to ease your guilty conscience. And here, Melanchthon just comes right out and says, it. look, it doesn't work. Mm. 
all these things that we keep trying to do, you're measuring, and like he said, measuring all these things against God's righteousness. You're never, if you're honest with yourself, maybe that's the key. If you're honest with yourself, it never actually works. You know, works. I like that. No <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> but so often we find ourselves looking to ourselves and looking honestly to our sin to try to make us feel better. We look to our sin as a solution to our conscience problem, not recognizing that it's our sin that's caused our conscience problem. And so we're just continually making things worse. And so we might look to uh, sins of, of alcohol to numb your conscience or sins of uh, self-pride or self-motivation to uh, get better at coping with your sinfulness. Or gossiping about the other person who's clearly worse than you. Or, to... or, or gossiping. Or, uh, I mean, take your pick on, on all the sins. They're, they're all there in a really shallow attempt to try to make us feel better. That language there that you used, I think, was pretty intentional. The language of addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and it is true. We are more addicted they're more addicted to anything else in the world except maybe oxygen. We, we are we are absolutely addicted to trying to salve our conscience with our own works. And, and that was the thing that caused the problem in the first place. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you get the... You get the initial high, and the only way to get it back, you think, is to try to pour more on top of it, or actually to get out of the low that follows it, is to pour more of that fake high on top of it. And instead, what it does is it pushes you further and further toward toward rock bottom, when the real answer is to have the uh, the addiction removed altogether by pointing you to an, an alternative answer, right? And, that, and that's what grace does, the promise of Christ does, caveat, if you believe it right? unbelieved it doesn't do you any good at all right and this is where we talked right at the end of last show about that distinction between law and gospel you kind of have to evaluate where what position is a person at what what position are they at you know what needs to be applied here um if we're propping ourselves up on our works and we're kind of feeding into that addiction a heavy dose of the law really needs to be applied there and uh you know i'm, I'm thinking in the context of um, what i'm preaching on this coming sunday the the job text in the three-year lectionary series mm-hmm. where where god you know uh job just kind of begins to finally cave in to the pressures of being overwhelmed and he he yells out at god and uh and then god says oh no i have some questions for you where were you when i laid the foundations of who the earth? do you, you know, think can, you yeah. are can you cause the sun to rise in the morning and put it in its place and keep the waves at bay and all that. I mean, we, we, we sometimes have to recognize who we're dealing with here. Mm. And if we have any sort of notion that our works or our efforts or anything, and we can try and excuse things away all we want of, Oh, you know, my, my struggles, they're little things, you know, God won't condemn me for that. You know, you know, recognize who you're up against here, Mm. right? He is the creator of the whole universe. He puts the stars in their place and he, laid the foundations of the world and he demands perfection. And, uh, so come and get crushed by the law, hmm. uh, so that you can be in the proper um, position to receive that pure grace, uh, as well. Great passage from Joe. We were talking about that on Sharp Iron this morning. One of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? it's great no i don't actually but see god does right right not only does he know and 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 see it he supports it he created it all of that and and more what what a well we're getting the sovereignty issue a little bit there but what a marvelously powerful god and then all this 
being displayed even more so through a weakness on the cross, right? That the right. same guy is a dead body. It was just unreal. Well, and, and that's another way to think about the works that we're talking about. Do you know when the mountain goats gave birth? Well, no, but these works that I do, they, they got to be good enough, right? I can, I, but I can do these good things. It's mm. like just the ridiculous juxtaposition of that. Right. I can't even figure out when goats give birth, but I think that I can do something to please God. Wait, Which what? all the things that you would do are in the same level. Even as God provides for those goats and creates the entire situation and sustains them, the best works you would ever do, the most perfect ones, were also gifts from him. So to think that I'm going to turn around and use those to convince him that I'm good enough for him after rebelling against <laughs> him, it's just, it's, we're insane. Our Chasing unbelief our is insane. Yeah. Over yeah. and over. Yeah. And, and and to the conscience issue too, yeah, those, those were gifts from him and yet we still did them tainted with sin and so they're imperfect gifts. Yes. And so it's like, yes. you know, here, here look here at this and it's it. like, you didn't do it right. That's right. You know? <laughs> I broke it. Yeah. It's good enough now, right? right? Oh, we're just, we're dumb. We're dumb. But we're, we're also, again, beloved by this creator so that he's redeemed us. And that's kind of what we're trying to get at here, that, that Christ as object of faith, and my question from earlier, why is faith so important? Because it's the only thing that doesn't do anything. It's the only thing that is done to Christ as object of faith does salvation to you as, as promise and word. Yeah. Earlier today, I was getting to uh, pray and my devotional thought ended up coming from the uh, second, sorry, the fourth article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession uh, a little bit earlier than where we are, quite a bit earlier than where we are. And it talked about faith as a receptacle, um, how it is our faith that receives the gifts of God. And so... So often we want to talk about faith as something that does, mm -hmm. something that, that goes out and conquers. But instead, faith is, like you said before, uh, Pastor Fisk, it's like a cup or a receptacle uh, that, that receives God's gifts and holds them for us. And without faith, we can't hold on to God's promises. We can't receive them uh, because we, we push everything else aside. But we receive the gifts of God in faith when we hear his word. Uh, but we are terrible sinners who try really, really hard sometimes to mishear and misunderstand God's word. The, the confusion of faith and will is a very modern thing, and, and we see this a lot and say why people won't baptize infants because infants can't have faith, and they've mixed faith and will together, but that's exactly what you're getting at there, Pastor Ill, that, that, that faith and willpower are two different things. My willpower can't act on the basis of the faith that I've been given. I have someone who is trustworthy, so I can choose to trust, right? But at the same time, or not at the same time, I'm being confused because Pastor Ill apparently has a... Is there something wrong with your headset? Yeah. Okay. I was trying really hard to be... It was really subtle. You're not quite you are as not subtle, subtle as me. Sorry. And I don't even know what I was talking about. Faith. Oh, oh, faith and will. Faith and will. Yeah. Right. And so, so the will can act on the basis of faith, but it is not the same thing. And in this way, faith is ultimately something that, no matter what you're going to put real trust in, if it's real trust, if I trust something, it, it is only because that thing outside of me has convinced me to trust in it. And that's again kind of the, the driving force here. Maybe that's a little a little too narrow, but. And if yeah. I can back us up a little bit too here. Um, you started after this, but earlier in 93, right where 93 begins, it says, we believe and teach that good works must be done. Uh, parenthetical remark, fulfilling the law ought to follow faith. And, and we do teach this. And um, you, you were making jokes of me being a newlywed earlier, but, uh, and so I certainly don't want to sound like I'm an expert on marriage. Like I'm sure the three after three months, after three months, you probably figured it all out. I'm not even three months yet. It's been like, but, three, uh, weeks. It's been like three weeks. <laughs> no, it's been longer than three weeks. But anyway, <laughs> right. I, I mean, you know, 
we we actually know this instinctively. I knew it even before I was married, right? You know that when when you try to to do something to earn someone's love, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Especially if it's unrequited love, mm-hmm. it, it it really is is a is a difficult struggle, mm. right? But why do I do loving things for my wife? Because I know that she loves me, mm-hmm. right? It, it's exactly what Luther was talking about in his devotion that I read, right? God already approved of the sacrifice, right? And he does that so through Christ, the the perfect sacrifice. And so we're, we're not going to shy away from encouraging good works to be done. We're also not going to seek to manipulate, which is what Rome is really mm. doing. They're trying to manipulate certain works mm. to be done. Um, but that we've talked about that before too. But, uh, you know, we, we will encourage the good works, but they flow forth from faith. And so we are going to really drive in and, and preach again and again, Christ crucified where you are approved of in Christ, um, because from that will naturally flow forth these works. Right. With, you, there, works. with you is forgiveness, therefore you are feared, as, yeah. as the psalmist says. I'm going to move us ahead. we got about five minutes before we go to break here. Move us ahead into paragraph 97. Let's, yeah, go ahead, Peter. Well, I'd like to make a comment, because we're <clears> about to move into the passages, the adversaries misuse section. And I don't know how many of you t- guys spend time on social media in discussions and comments and blogs. Is, is that your job? I, uh, is that what you do all the time? They pay me to be on Facebook all day. It's yeah. really weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 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 can see, I can see that as a blessing or a curse. It kind of depends. <laughs> it's a weird world we live depends in. Depends on the day, yeah. But but this part, I, I think it's worthwhile to kind of reiterate a little bit of the structure of the apology because we haven't talked about it a whole lot. But often the confessions in general, you've got this structure of kind of here's the issue in, in the apology. Here's what we believe. Here's what we don't believe. Mm. And so we're about to move into the section of here's what we don't believe. Here's how they get it wrong. I have had uh, instances where either in an online discussion or actually face to face with somebody that I'm talking to, a friend or, you know, back when I was doing the college Bible study at my church, one of the students would take a passage from here and kind of miss that this was the, no, we don't confess this Mm. section. This Mm -hmm. is the heresy section. And take it and throw it in my face like, well, look, this is what you believe. That contradicts what you've said over here. So I think it's just worth noting as we move into this next section, it can be very easy for us to maybe not speak as clearly. And so for our listeners to give a little bit of grace that, no, no, we're not trying to confess heresy. We're actually trying to point out how the adversaries are misusing these passages. And in doing that, we may uh, be a little bit unclear ourselves in our own way of speaking because we're trying to deal with something that's twisted to begin right. with. Right. Melanchthon's going to be quoting their argument, yeah. so we're going to be reading their argument out loud. It's kind of like Job's friends are inspired and inerrantly recorded, even though they, they speak errant arguments, and you don't want to quote them as your as your actual position and so forth. So, good, good caveat there. But paragraph 97. Now we will reply to those passages that the adversaries quote in order to prove that we are justified by love and works. Now, key here, where are they quoting this? In this document called the Confutation, which was released very shortly after the Augsburg Confession, where they line by line say, we accept this, but we don't accept that, and you guys better, you know, repent and deal with it because we're Rome and you're not. And uh, they, they, they line by line that, and then this led to a great deal of controversy. It does kind of get worked out for a little while. By the time this is going on, though, that you know, there's an uneasy alliance between the military powers, but there is no real peace between the, the two different parties theologically. So we're, we're trying to respond to those and, and 
particularly win over people like the emperor himself uh, to understanding our position. So first, and, and all that follows is going to be about trying to prove that justification is based on love and works rather than faith. Not that love and works are good, we, we admit that, but that this is where we are justified, is how we become good. From 1 Corinthians 13, 2, they quote, If I have all faith, but have not love, I am nothing. And I'm lengthen. This is satire. Here they triumph greatly, he says. And he's he, you gotta, there's a smirk on his face. Uh, Paul testifies to the entire church, they say, that faith alone does not justify. But a reply is easy after we have shown above what we teach about love and works. This passage of Paul requires love. We also require this. For we have said above that renewal and beginning to fulfill the law must exist in us, according to Jeremiah 31. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. If anyone should cast away love, even though he has great faith, he does not keep his faith. For he does not keep the Holy Spirit, nor indeed does Paul in this passage talk about the way of justification. Instead, he writes to show those who, after they have been justified, should be urged to bring forth good fruit lest they lose the Holy Spirit. And we can pick up more there, but we just got a minute before break. I want to make sure that we have a chance to jump on that a little bit before we go. But I, I pointed out one phrase here, kind of along the lines here, when he says, we, he, he writes to those after they have been justified, should be urged to bring forth good fruit. It's very easy to read that as something we are to do that we are to work to bring forth good fruit. So I think it might, can we clarify a little bit what this actually means? Uh, we could if we weren't having a, a gesture out in the hallway giving us a hard time. So we'll come back on the other side of this break, make sure we know what we're talking about. Thank you, President Harrison, for distracting the entire crew. I'm worried I'm a heretic now. <laughs> we'll be right huh. back. Do you know how to align your faith with your finances? Hi, this is Rich Robertson, President and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Whether you're looking for faith-based financial solutions or ministry resources to guide your growth, we offer the services you need without forfeiting great rates. Lutheran Church Extension Fund offers borrowing solutions for rostered church workers and congregations, support services for your unique ministry, and investment products that serve the church. Learn more at lcef.org. Hi, this is Todd Wilkin, inviting you to join us for Issues Etc. weekday afternoons from 3 to 5. Issues Etc. is a live call-in show with a twofold purpose. First, we defend and teach the truths rediscovered during the Reformation, grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. Second, we challenge today's postmodern culture with its unbiblical ideology. Issues Etc. live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO Radio. I deserve a reward. After all, I found our dream house. I have a pickle. Thanks. But I found out how much the house was going to cost, past the jar. But I found us the perfect mortgage. But then I found out the house had radon, Ugh. the radioactive gas that's the second leading cause of lung cancer. Yeah, well, I need mm, two pickles. I found the phone number to call, 1-800-SOS-RADON, where you can get all the information you need to test your home and fix a radon problem. Mm, no, I'd like some ice cream with this pickle. Are you trying to tell me something? Protect your family from radon. Call 1-800-SOS-RADON. 1-800-SOS-RADON. In 2004, a Princeton University professor began cataloging more than 40 building sites on campus with inscriptions, many with biblical references, including, and be ye not called masters, for only one is your master, Christ, attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. 
On the entrance wall at the Harvard Law School Library is an inscription attributed to St. Augustine in a reference to Isaiah 10.1. An unjust law is no law at all. Above the entrance to UCLA's Humanities Building are words from Psalms 119.18. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And stirring controversy in 2015 at the University of Florida is the archway inscription leading to the new business education building. Words of Micah 6.8. Walk humbly with your God. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Back to Concord Matters, the only show where the high and mighty president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, washes windows while we try to talk theology. He's no longer there, but Pastor Harrison was out there smiling at us, giving us a good time as we were talking about uh, Philip Melanchthon's response to the misuse of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, if I have all faith but have not love, I am nothing, as a way of teaching that faith does not justify, but I've got to add love to it in order to make it justify me. And uh, the, the subtle one, Mr. Peter Sladen of the social media sphere of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod had a comment on that that was rudely interrupted by the powers <laughs> that be. So we'll try to pick that it's up. It's not often I get trolled in this particular setting. That's right. <laughs> well, I was just saying, and on line 100 or, you know, 99 to 100, when Melanchthon says, instead, he writes to those who, after they had been justified, should be urged to bring forth good fruit, lest they lose the Holy Spirit. That, once again, we have to be careful. We have to keep that phrase in context because it sounds like this urge to bring forth good fruit. It's like he's telling me to do something to bear fruit as opposed to this understanding we've had that fruit is a work of the Holy Spirit and, and the urging, I don't know, but help me, help me work through this. Cause it, it sounds very much like I'm supposed to do something to make this fruit happen. Um, there is a right way to understand how he's talking about it and to use this language and understand it rightly, but I could very easily and quickly run off in the other direction. I, I don't, I don't think Melanchthon is actually, <clears throat> saying something that we would condemn here at this point. Right. Because it's tying into the earlier part That's where what I'm we saying. do teach that good works must be yeah. done. There's got to be right. a right way to understand yeah. this phrase. I mean, what he's essentially making the point here is, is that you are proof texting Rome. Um, you know, it, it seems overly simplistic because that's always the the error. It seems these days still, right? Um, but uh, you know, he does uh, in, in right away in chapter one and in chapter two of First Corinthians, he calls them brothers. So you you are a part of this community of believers that Christ has approved of you, right? God has approved of you in Christ, rather I should say, right? And so these good works should flow forth from that. And and both letters of the Corinthians are really letters of correction to those who recognize they are already approved of in God. It's not in their works that they're going to be saved, but they are causing some damage and a clear teaching, a clear confession of that Christian faith because of the things that they're doing. So he is reproving them. And so here Melanchthon's making the point, you know, that actually by them quoting from this, they're kind of making our point and saying that this is what Paul is teaching. But they're proof texting and pulling it out and saying, oh, see, we, we have to do these works in order to form our faith. I like cherry picking as opposed to proof texting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's 
I think that there's two uh, a bigger context thing going on. And so if we if we stop for a second and smell the roses around 1 Corinthians 13, everybody knows this passage, or many people know this passage, because it's it's the great love chapter. And this is where, and as Pastor Smith was rightly pointing out, we start by Paul speaking to Christians. Dear Christians, don't stop loving each other. You who have faith also have love. Uh, but it's a whole point of you're already converted, you're already justified, and you continue with love. And when Paul gets to the end of First Corinthians 13, he talks about how faith, hope, and love abide. This isn't one against the other. And by the the contrarians trying to to cherry pick or whatever it is that they're doing of, of trying to set up love and faith against each other is completely and totally foreign to the way Paul is speaking here in first Corinthians and to the way that Paul speaks through the rest of scripture. Faith, uh, Paul talks about faith and hope and love all working together to pit them against each other. Never a good day. Yeah. Um, but that's exactly what he's trying to do. I think that's really, really do. well said, uh, Pastor well, Hill. And, and- and to tag on to that, too, you're, you're right. The, the problem is Christians don't stop loving each other. That's what he's trying to make the point to him because it's flowing right forth from chapter one. The reason he's writing to him, he says there are divisions in the church. And he says, is Christ divided? There he's pointing to the fact that you are in Christ. Even and, after he's greeted them as the church in Christ. Right, exactly. Yeah. And he's yeah. setting up a smackdown for the super spiritual ones in the next chapter who are busy using all of their various apostolic gifts in order to build themselves up. So he, right. he's prepping yeah. the way to say, right. hey, stop using your tongue speaking because you think you're so cool, right? And, and, and pushing back to some other things. I want to hit at what I think, though, uh, Mr. Slayton, <laughs> Peter Peter S., uh, what, what I think that you were, you were also kind of wrestling with there, though, is this idea, which is true, and it is here, but it can be kind of a bit jarring. Again, read that line. He writes to those who, after they have been justified, should be urged to bring forth good fruit, lest they lose the Holy Spirit. Well, does that mean that, therefore, my good works are what cause me to keep the Holy Spirit? And here is where we have—the answer is no— but my my wicked works or my lack of good works do cause me to lose the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, how can that be? You're speaking out both sides of your mouth there, Pastor Fisk. I am, because it's the paradox of election at work, that God is always the author of salvation. We are always the author of damnation. And it, we do need to be urged, for the sake of the fear of God, that we would do good works lest we lose the Holy Spirit, that we would pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me, but not in such a way as to believe that we will, none, we will having been justified, I will finish justifying myself. Having begun by the spirit, we're not going to finish it by the flesh. And so you ha- you do have a both hand coming out of Melanchthon's mouth here. And if you don't have election as your paradigm, it can be it can be disturbing. It should be disturbing. It can be confusing. Yeah. yeah that well, well, election as your paradigm co- connected with law, rightly distinguishing law mm, and gospel, mm. right? And you made that point exceptionally well. And it ties in again with that Luther devotional I read earlier in the show, um, where, you know, it, it, it can be dangerous to us too, when we start to get caught up in the good works so much so that it it leads to unbelief because like Cain I start to think oh I actually have something good to offer here right and and so that is unbelief that's the rejection of the holy spirit mm-hmm. i'm trusting myself and mm-hmm. not in christ i think that without law and gospel election single election the way that we confess it it not only doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense rationally as this kind of mathematical formula that's why we have so much trouble with it but law and gospel as the reality of election at work does make sense in that the gospel is the single election of God unto salvation for all, 
the law is the condemnation of us by works alone. It, it is election at work, right? Uh, it, but and so law and gospel is just a, a, a bit more easy way of speaking about it. But this is why when you and now we're going off, I'm going off on a tangent here. But you know, for the Calvinist to try to preach the gospel is a bit difficult because they can't actually say it to everybody because they don't believe all people are elect. It, there has to be an implicit maybe in that. I recently was actually overhearing a conversation, and, and I don't want to uh, name names of where it was or anything, but there was there was a, a Calvinist guy, and he admitted as much, and he was trying to have a conversation with someone who was asking him about Christianity and what made his position different from others, and he was struggling to say, you know, because he, he, they, they agree with us in justification by grace alone. He was struggling to say how salvation and faith come to you. And the best he could do was say, well, we believe it's all about the cross, that the cross did everything. And I wanted to shout at him, no, the words you're telling him about the cross are doing it right now. I'm telling you, but he couldn't actually say that. He just had to talk about the cross and this sort of like platonic idea kind of thing, right? And that is what is at root, even at the heart of all of this argument with Rome. I, that was a long-winded thing. I'm sorry, guys, but yeah. Go ahead. I think that we're actually starting to get a little bit ahead of the apology. If it's okay, can we let the apology catch up with us? That was a very gentle smackdown. No, I didn't mean it as such. I meant, I meant, I want to hear more apology because this is really good stuff. And we did designate you as reader last last week, You're so up. you can go ahead. Oh, and I, so I can go. Go ahead. Then let us read from uh, from the <laughs> apology article. Read article five, uh, and we'll pick up at paragraph one hundred. Furthermore, the adversaries treat the matter in a ridiculous way. They quote this one passage in which Paul teaches about fruit, yet. They leave out many other passages in which he discusses the way of justification in a regular order. Besides, they always add a correction to the other passages that speak of faith. Namely, that the passages ought to be understood as applying to faith formed by love, in quotes. They add no correction that there is also no need that there is also need for faith, which believes we are counted righteous for Christ's sake as the atonement. So the adversaries exclude Christ from justification and teach only a righteousness of the law. And I'll stop the reading there, but that's a not so gentle smackdown of what they are teaching. They're, he's basically saying they're excluding Christ. They'll correct things about love, but they will not correct things about faith uh, because they don't want to talk about faith as being the receptacle of God's gifts. I think it's important, and I want to go on that direction and not on the one I'm about to say. It is important to recognize that Rome doesn't quite teach it this crassly anymore. This is true. But they have adopted the language of faith and brought it into the system. So this condemnation isn't quite fair now, but it was very fair then. But it is a fair statement in the world in which we live, and there are corners of the church that still do oh, talk absolutely. this way. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, them inserting faith didn't fix it. They just ruined faith. They made faith into a work, and part of the whole says you got to add. You still got to add love to faith to be saved. They at least now just do talk about faith some, whereas before, at this time, they weren't talking about faith at all. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Uh, yes, probably. Basically, by, by adopting the language of faith and grace, which they do at, I believe, the, the Council of Trent, which did institute some reforms, both morally and spiritually, for the, for the sake of the Church at large, and was a good impact of the Lutheran Reformation on the Church at large in the West. By adopting the language of faith, but still continuing to teach it as only a beginning or only a part and needing love to complete it, they then basically made that faith alone useless. It's no longer alone, right? So, so. I don't know if this is if this if this answers your question because I'm not sure what the narrowness of, of the question itself is. But again, 
we are saying that salvation is by faith alone because faith is the only thing that receives the promise. They were saying, well, love is the thing that justifies. Then they came along and said, no, you're right. Faith is also important. Faith and works justify, but this still is a rejection of the faith alone that receives the promises. It adds works into the conscience. It cannot then satisfy the wrath of God, and it ends up denying the atonement at the end. All the same, it's just rather than being a Pelagian, you're a semi-Pelagian, right? Right. Um, and I also just feel honor-bound to, to uh, point out, uh, for those who today might say, I believe in deeds, not creeds, uh, this is very much the same kind of a logical move. Yeah. It's not happening in the same circles, but it is the exact same move of, of well, yeah, it, I'm saved basically by my deeds and the faith. The statement of belief, the creed, doesn't matter. It's just the other side of the coin. Well, that phrase, faith made active through love. It sounds so so simple. In fact, it almost is a quote, I think, from maybe James. Uh, but but that idea is, is not as simple as just having faith and doing good works. It is that your faith is useless unless you add enough good works to it. Mm-hmm. And, and that... That is the denial of justification by Which faith. is to pull that quote from James completely and totally right. out of context. Uh, is, Don't that from, do that. is that from James? I, I believe think, so. I think it's right. Yeah, go ahead. In in uh, paragraph 100 here, he talks about the way of justification in a regular order. And there is a proper order. And what you guys were just talking about, I mean, this language does still come out. And even outside of Rome, uh, just this past election cycle, I remember watching uh, 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 TV at one point and uh, Hillary Clinton, who's a Methodist, um, not, not a Catholic, a uh, Roman Catholic, um, but uh, she was making a speech at a dinner where she said um, it, it was the, the archbishop in uh, um, New York had invited her to this dinner, and I forget what that dinner is called. But anyway, very famously, the I those think he who invited were all the pres- candidates. If yeah, I exactly. Correctly. Yeah, yeah, that is correct. And uh, she she said in there, she said, "We agree with Rome that it is faith." plus works and she emphasized plus works and i took a a video of it with my phone on my tv you know so low tech i know uh, mr slayton over there is making fun of me but i posted it (laughs) on social media and uh and uh, and i said it it seems like we're not getting past this this reformation idea and it's exactly what you're you were just talking about you know so they've they've supplanted uh love plus works to equal faith mm. and said p- faith plus works, but it amounts to the same problem mm-hmm. when you have redefined faith into something else that the faith is not complete unless it's attached to works. Whereas we're talking about here that justification in the regular order, right? Forms the faith Christ crucified, right? That you are approved of God. I no longer have a God problem. Right. Mm. And, and I am, formed in that faith and then because i am so loved it's like of course i want to do this and you know do these do these things and i hear these things um that i'm supposed to do in love for my neighbor with a happy heart and when i don't i am led to repentance i feel guilty about it right yeah exactly it is for full disclosure in james 222 that says that uh faith is active Along with works. And and it is, uh, you know, according to James, appropriate to speak that way. But also, it's important to recognize James is has a completely different argument than what Paul has in 1 Corinthians. And so, the people that James are, is writing to are wanting to say, well, it's all about faith and you don't need any works at all. Hmm. Which is bad. 
But the Roman Catholics are trying to argue that Paul is saying, well, you just need love. You just need the works and you don't need the faith. Uh, and so they're on the other side of the spectrum. And the fact is you need both. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. We read James and First Corinthians alongside each other and say, after conversion, faith and love indeed. However, for the sake of conversion, uh, in good order for justification, we talk about faith first. Because you can't really truly love without faith. But let us return to Paul, they say. Let us. Good. No one can conclude anything more from this text than this, which is what you just said, Pastor Joe. Love is necessary. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Right? It's a very in fact without it, all you have is hate, and that is not cool. Right? As a matter of fact, they say we confess this, we which is we agree this. with yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it, confess means. It yeah. is also necessary not to steal. Uh, it's okay to steal from, from Pastor Hill, though, from time to time. But otherwise, it's not okay to steal. <laughs> he but, has nothing I want. Is, but we've got to punch somebody sometime, Peter. It's just the way it is. So, <laughs> I understand. But the reasoning will not be correct if someone would put the argument like this. Not to commit theft is necessary. Therefore, not to commit theft justifies. Which gets back to what your question, Peter S., was earlier as well, right, about losing the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It, simply because being afraid of my evil works, destroying my faith, does not mean that my good works create my faith. Uh, it is wrong to say to not commit theft justifies. Justification is not the approval of a particular work, but of the entire person. Therefore, this passage from Paul does not harm us. Only the adversaries must not add to it whatever they please by imagination. Imagination. Um, <laughs> we're, we're back into like, it's not just snarky Melanchthon anymore. It's no, almost he's, like he's just frustrated and angry. And I looked ahead. I was like, but we have 30 more pages in this particular article. And if he's this frustrated and angry now, oh man, yeah. if he's ramping up, we've got 30 more pages of him getting really mad. There's another line somewhere <laughs> coming along where he'll talk about them proxying most profusely. And, you know, he's, he just, he begins to just drop the bombs like that. So <laughs> uh, continuing on, Paul does not say that love justifies. And he just, yeah, that, this is the point. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, right in the context, I am nothing, right? In other words, faith, however great it may have been, is extinguished. He does not say that love overcomes the terrors of sins and of death, that we can set our love against God's wrath and judgment, or that our love satisfies God's law. He does not say that we have access to God by our love without Christ as the atoning sacrifice, that we receive the promised forgiveness of sins by our love. Paul says nothing about this. He does not, therefore, think that love justifies, because we are justified only... Is, is, am I repeating myself? Yes, I am, to try to drive home the point. We are justified only when we receive Christ as the atoning sacrifice and believe that for Christ's sake, God is reconciled to us. Neither is justification even to be dreamed of without Christ as the atonement. If there is no need of Christ, if we can overcome death by our love, if we have access to God by our love without Christ as the atonement, then let our adversaries remove the promise about Christ. Let them abolish the gospel. Hmm. And that's, that's the threat. I mean, that's why he's going on and on. That's why he's getting angry. It's why we keep talking about it. It's why we want to keep talking about it. Because ultimately, there's nothing else to talk about. And, and to attack this or to allow an, a, a, a words against this to stand is to give up Christianity altogether. And I think that here we're having kind of a, a simile Eustace et Peccator moment where we talk about being both the, the sinful man and the new creation in Christ at the same time. Because it is only by the new creation that we are in Christ that we can love. We can't love apart from the faith that we have in Jesus Christ uh, and without the, the rebirth and the regeneration that we have in him. But... 
the old man who is continually and persistently present with us is always looking for a way to get a foothold and is always looking for that way to say, see, you can love, you can do this faith thing, you got it under control. And the more we try to have it under control, the more we realize, no, no, we don't. But that's exactly what we try to do in our sin. The very next line is actually really telling, if I can read that really quick. The adversaries corrupt very many passages because they bring to them their own opinions and do not derive the meaning from the passages themselves. Now, this is almost like a, it almost comes across as like a throwaway comment by Melanchthon, but he's, he's presenting a very foundational biblical interpretation hermeneutic, if I can use a mm-hmm. big $10 mm-hmm. word here. and so It means I, biblical interpretation. <laughs> which means biblical interpretation. <laughs> you know, there's this whole idea of exegesis versus eisegesis. And I think, uh, but pastors, can you pontificate a little bit on those two words and the difference between them? Because that... We do this. I can't we pontificate, all... but, but but the unanswerable one. The Excellent. Let's hear it. How many big words can we use? Well, so exegesis <laughs> is letting this text speak for itself. And eisegesis is I have something I want it to say, so I'm approaching it with my preformed uh, conclusion. And so I'm going to make it say what I want. Mm, preformed uh, you know, that's how I'm conclusion. Those are big words there, Pastor Smith. <laughs> Don't think but by way of example... Um, yeah. the, the upcoming gospel reading that we get to hear at, at Trinity this week is uh, Jesus walking on the water with his disciples. And this is a text where the when sea, we sit down... It's a sea, not water. Uh, actually, it's, it's both. Yeah. It's both. Water's a bigger word First than the sea. First it's sea, then it's water. <laughs> but uh, as we get is there... Is it wet? Is it deep? Well, there's a theological point. Sea's connected to sin. Yes, <laughs> yes, I understand that. We have sea devolved. is used twice, and then water is used twice. But we'll argue about the. We have devolved. Later. Pastor Hill, but this is actually a point of exegesis, where yes. Pastor Smith and I are approaching the text and saying, "Where is the word sea used? Where is the word water used? Mm. And what is the significance of that?" And we are starting with the text, and we are grappling from the text. That's literally what exegesis means: is from the text about what the text says and therefore what the text means. It is a completely other thing, though, to say, oh, look, Jesus told Peter to get out of the boat and to walk on the water, and he tells us to uh, embrace those difficult times in our life in the same way. And so we start with our pre, uh, preformed opinion about what the text says. Which and would we, be a passage we condemn. And we yeah, read that said. back into the, the scripture passage but the text doesn't say that. And so we are reading into, I said Jesus, into the text, what it doesn't say. And so we have just there a contrast between exegesis, what the text says, and I said Jesus, trying to make the text say what we want it to say. So Melanchthon's really dropping a huge bomb on him right here. Right. And he's saying, <laughs> you are reading into the text things that are not biblical. Uh, and... That is a huge problem. And you say it's a kind of throwaway line, but I think that's because sometimes uh, we who have been around it long enough and deal with it pretty regularly, we take it for granted that, you know, this is the way you're supposed to approach the text. Um, Probably a good number of our listeners who are faithful confessional Lutherans, uh, you know, uh, agree with us. They take this for granted. But the reality is, is that we see all around us that people still approach scripture in this way. What does uh, we this see it, mean? We to see me? it among certain other denominations too, right? Sure. You know, uh, you know, they, there's certain social issues that they want to seem uh, welcoming to and things like that. And so then they approach scripture from an eisegesis 
kind of way. Here's what I believe scripture about say, these you know, social issues. Uh, that Jesus yeah. is saying, you know, uh, that uh, really we should love more. And, and even here, that's making the same point too, right? That my love somehow is what I'm, I'm put here for the purpose on. But my purpose is to proclaim Christ and him crucified. That's where faith is formed, uh, especially for St. Paul. I also wanted to back up, if I could, to, to this. Um, I get the image here talking about this uh, relation of faith and love. Um, the way Melanchthon is talking about them misusing this passage, I used the image earlier of because my life, wife loves me, approves of me, right? You know, has married me. Pretty sure I that, do, are you? I, I respond with loving things. Well, she did say yes, and where's that's the ring? That's true. That's true. Right? It's only been three weeks. Right. There's, there's been <laughs> vows. It's been more than that. But anyway, you know, uh, before I was a happily married man, um, huh. Right. You know, if I were to go uh, do loving acts like sending uh, flowers to, you know, I don't know, some movie star. I don't watch movies or TV, so I don't even know, like, who's a good looking movie star. These Mr. Days. Ed. Uh, <laughs> I think he's dead. Right. <laughs> we got to get to his okay. point. Sorry. That's <laughs> my fault, too. Yeah. But, yeah. but uh, um, you know, if I were to, to do loving things, right, and everything, what, what, but it's not responded, it's not approved of, what do we call that? We call that stalking. Right, <laughs> and especially and, if it's and unwanted. There's, there's, yes. There, yes, exactly. And, yeah. and 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 people would say, "Oh, well, that would never be the case with God." Except for what does Jesus say? Right, that there will be people who come to him and say, "Oh, did we did we not prophesy in your name?" And he says, "I tell you the truth, I never, I never knew, knew you. you." Right, so he does reject people who try to come at them with their own works of love. Right. And so I, I think this is making a point here. If I were Melanchthon, the unanswerable uh, Sean Smith writing the apology, right, uh, we would have handled it all in the, the confession in the first place. But because uh, <laughs> it'd be an unanswerable. But, uh, you know, I would have probably made that point. Right. Mm. You know, that that there are these people uh, in Scripture who are, who are constantly trying to approach or the rich young ruler, what must I do to be saved? Well, right. this doesn't actually ease your conscience because perfection's demanded. That's Jesus' response to him. And he walks away sorrowful. Anybody got some gospel? That to was on? unanswerable. I, I, it was, it was kind of harsh speaking. So <laughs> someone take us out with oh, some gospel. Your point, your point is right. that that the Bible is full of this doctrine of justification by grace through right. faith. It's everywhere Absolutely. if you just if you can look for it. But that, in Peter S.'s point, Melanchthon's point, we by nature do not believe this, nor do we have it within ourselves. We have something else. We have the opinion of the law in our hearts, the opinion of legis. And so we come to this text and we assume, because we think we're spiritual, that we're going to find what we assume to be spiritual in the text, which is justification based on works. And we go and we look for it. And then we, we can't find it natively, so we shoehorn it into a, a story like Jesus walking on the water and Peter walks on the water, and so you should walk on the water too. But we don't have any water to walk on, and we always think if we tried. So it's really about overcoming the storms in your life. And look, it all makes sense, but it actually doesn't come out of the text at all, as opposed to this miracle of election comes along, preaches Christ crucified first and foremost as the center of everything, regenerates us to a new mind, a new way of looking at things, which is that God's grace is the thing that ultimately matters, and then preaches that to us in every corner of the Bible so that Jesus is really saving Peter as he sinks. And that's what's going on in the text, right? As opposed to telling Peter he's got to do more. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and lead us toward the end here. Uh, we are, you're listening to Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO. I am Pastor Jonathan Fisk. We've been chatting about the apology of the Augsburg Confession with Pastor Peter. Peter Ill of Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstead, Illinois. Say hello, Mr. Angelic Peter. Hey. Hey there. Pastor Sean Smith of St. Paul Winehill in Emmanuel, West Point, Illinois, where he preaches the most unanswerable sermons you've ever heard. Thank you. And Mr. Peter Slayton, the social media manager for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, who subtly and deftly handles all trolls that come his way. 
Jonathan Fisk. Again, you're listening to Concord Matters. I'm not sure we made any sense today, but hopefully you learned a little bit more about why faith alone matters so very much, what Jesus Christ has done for you, and how this good news is worth living and dying for. We'll catch you in about uh, three weeks when we get back on again. Next week, you'll have Pastor Shear back in the saddle. Until then, rock on.